Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 24. As usual, we have two amazing stories for you today, so let's get right down to it with no further fuss, shall we? Our first story today is Save Me Please by David Barr Kirtley. An earlier incarnation of this story appeared years ago on Escape Pod, I think it was episode 124, but David Barr Kirtley has kindly agreed to let us produce a second version. David is the author of several dozen fantasy and science fiction short stories, including Save Me Pliz, which was featured in the anthology Fantasy, the Best of the Year. He's also the host of the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast on Wired.com, for which he's interviewed over a hundred guests including such luminaries as George R. R. Martin, Richard Dawkins, Paul Krugman, Simon Pegg, Margaret Atwood, Philip Pullman, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Ursula K. Le Guin herself. He lives in New York, and you can find out more about him and his work by following the links on the Triple F. There's also a link to what he terms his favourite fan letter ever. It's well worth a read. This version is read for us today by Catherine Inskip, who narrated a story on our sister podcast, Starship Sofa, last week. Catherine is a very private person, but she has told me that she weighs galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She's addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. Much like me, except for the Japanese logic puzzles bit. So, let's hear Save Me Please by David Barr Kirtley. <laughs> Meg hadn't heard from Devon in four months, and she realised that she missed him. So on a whim, she tossed her sword and scabbard into the back seat of her car and drove over to campus to visit him. She'd always thought that she and Devon would be one of those couples who really did stay friends afterward. They'd been close for so long, and things hadn't ended that badly. 
Actually, the whole incident seemed pretty silly to her now. Still, she'd been telling herself that the split had been for the best, with her working full-time and him still an undergrad. It was like they were in two different worlds. She'd been busy with work, and he'd always been careless about answering email. And now, somehow, four months had passed without a word. She parked in the shadow of his dorm, then grabbed her sword and strapped it to her jeans. She approached his building. A spider, dog-sized, iridescent, repelled toward her, its thorned limbs plucking the air. She dropped a hand to the hilt of her sword. The spider wisely withdrew, back to its webbed lair amid the eaves. She had no keycard, so she waited for someone to open the door. She checked her reflection. Eyes large, hips slender, ears a bit tapered at the tips. She looked fine, though she'd never be a match for the imaginary elf-maid Lena. Finally, someone exited, an unfamiliar brown-haired girl. Meg caught the door and passed into the lobby. She climbed the stairs and walked down the hall to Devon's door. She knocked. His roommate Brant answered, looking half asleep, or maybe stoned. Hey, Meg, Brant mumbled casually, as if he'd just seen her yesterday. How's the real world? Like college, she said, but with less art history. Is Devon here? Devon? Brant seemed confused. Oh, you don't know. He hesitated. He dropped out. What? She was startled. Just packed up and left, weeks ago. He said it didn't matter any more. He was playing that game all the time. Brant didn't need to say which game, least of all to her. He said he found something huge in the game. Then he went away. Went away where? Is he all right? Brant shrugged. I don't know, Meg. He didn't tell me. You could email him, I guess. Or try to find him online. He's always playing that game. Brant shook his head. And I mean always. Meg strode to her car. She chucked her sword in back, slid into the driver's seat and slammed the door. Devon was the smartest guy she'd ever met and the stupidest. How could he drop out with just one year left? Sadly, she wasn't all that surprised. She'd met him at an off-campus party her junior year. They'd ended up on the same couch. Before long, he was on his third beer and telling her, I didn't even want to go to college. My parents insisted. I had a whole other plan. She said, which was? To be a prince. He gave a grandiose shrug. I think I'd make a pretty good prince. He noted her sceptical expression and added, But not Prince of, like, England. I'm not greedy. Prince of Monaco would be fine. Wait, is that even a country? Yes, she said. Good, he declared, thumping his beer on the end table. Prince of Monaco. Or if that's taken... Liechtenstein, she suggested. Liechtenstein, great, he agreed, pointing. Or Trinidad and Tobago. She shook her head. It's not a monarchy. No princes. No princes? He feigned outrage. Well, screw them, then. Liechtenstein it is. After that, she noticed him everywhere. He seldom went to class or did coursework, so he was always out somewhere, 
joking with friends in the dining hall, pacing around the pond or sitting under a tree in the central quad doodling. His carefree independence was oddly endearing, especially to her who was always so conscientious, though later his indifference to school worried her. She'd ask, What'll you do after you graduate? He'd just shrug and say, Grades don't matter, just that you have the degree. And now he'd dropped out. Angry, she started her car. She drove back to her apartment. She emailed him repeatedly, but got no response. Mutual friends hadn't heard from him. His mum thought he was still in school. Meg got really worried. Finally, she resorted to something she'd promised herself she'd never do. She drove over to the mall to buy the game. It was called Realms of Eldritch, a groundbreaking multiplayer online game full of quests and wizards and monsters. Some of the game was based on real life. People carried magic swords, and many of the enemies were real, such as wolves or goblins or giant spiders. And like in real life, there was a gnome who sometimes appeared to give you quests or hints or items. But most of it was pure fantasy, dragons and unicorns and walking trees and demon lords. And elves. In the game store, Meg eyed the box art. Lena, the golden-haired and impossibly buxom elf maid, grinned teasingly. Meg had a complicated relationship with Lena, especially considering that Lena wasn't real. The year before, Meg had been riffling through Devon's notebook and had come across a dozen sketches of Lena. The proportions were off, but each sketch came closer and closer to being a perfect representation. Meg had begun teasing Devon that he was in love with Lena. Meg had also once, foolishly, dressed up as Lena in bed, for Devon's twenty-first birthday. It was just a campy gag, but he'd seemed way too into it. He'd even called her Lena. She'd never worn the costume again, and he'd never brought it up. He'd been pretty drunk that night, and she'd wondered if he even remembered her looking like someone else. She bought the game, planning to return it the next day, and started home. In the rearview mirror, she saw a flock of giant bats tailing her. She tensed, ready to slam the brakes and reach for her sword, but finally the bats veered off and vanished into the west. Back at her apartment... She opened the game box and dumped its contents out on her coffee table. Half a dozen CDs, a thick manual, some flyers, a questionnaire. It seemed so innocuous. Hard to believe that this little box could destroy a relationship. She and Devon had been so happy together for almost a year before he got caught up in this game. She installed it. As progress bars chugged, she thumbed through the manual which described the rules in mind-numbing detail. Races, classes, attributes, combat, inventory, spells. She'd never understood how someone as smart and talented as Devon could waste so much time on this stuff. Maybe she could have understood if the game at least featured some brilliant story, but Devon spent all his time doing level runs, endlessly repeating the same quest over and over in hopes of attaining some marginally more powerful magical item and even after he'd become as powerful as the game allowed, he still kept playing, exploiting different bugs so that he could duplicate superpowered items or make himself invincible. How could someone who read Heidegger for fun so immerse himself in a subculture of people too lazy or daft to type out actual words, who, instead of someone please help, 
would type S-U-M-1-P-L-Z-H-L-P. Meg, on the rare occasions that she permitted herself solitary recreation, preferred Jane Austen novels or independent films. She'd once told Devon, I'm more interested in things that are real. He'd been playing the game. Monitor Glow made his head a silhouette. He said, What's real is just an accident. No one designed reality to be compelling. He gestured to the screen. But a fantasy world is so designed. It takes the most interesting things that ever existed, like knights in armour and pirates on the high seas, and combines them with the most interesting things that anyone ever dreamed up. Fire-breathing dragons and blood-drinking vampires. It's the world as it should be. Full of wonder and adventure. To privilege reality simply because it is reality just represents a kind of mental parochialism. She knew better than to debate him, but she still thought the game was vaguely silly, and she refused to play it, though he often bugged her to join in. He'd say, It's something we could do together, and she'd answer, I just don't want to. And he'd say, Give it a try. I do things I don't want to because they're important to you. Sometimes I even end up liking them. But by then, Meg had already spent far too many hours sitting on the couch watching him play the game, or hearing about it over candlelit dinners, and she didn't intend to do anything to justify him spending any more time on it. It was hard some nights, after they'd made love, to lie there knowing that he was just itching to slip from her embrace and go back to the game, to know that a glowing electronic box full of imaginary carnage beckoned him in a way that her company and conversation and even body no longer could. Finally, she couldn't take it any more. Though she knew she might lose him, she announced, Devon, look, I don't know how else to say this. It's that game or me. I'm not kidding. He released the controls and swiveled in his chair. He gave her a wounded look and said, That's not fair, Meg. I'd never make you give up something you enjoyed. She stood her ground. This is something I'm asking you to do, for me. You really want me to delete it? Yes, she said. Oh, God, yes. He bit his lip, then said. Fine. He fiddled with the computer, then turned to her and added, There, it's gone. All right? All right, she said, euphoric and for a few weeks things were great again, like they used to be. But one night she came over and found him playing it again. She stared. What are you doing? He glanced back at her and said, Oh, hi. He noticed her agitation and explained, My guild really needed me for this one quest. You told me you deleted it. He turned back to the screen. Yeah, I had to reinstall the whole thing. Don't worry, I'll delete it again tomorrow. Meg was furious. You promised. Come on, he said. I haven't played for three weeks. It's just this one time. She stomped away. I told you, Devon, that game or me. Isn't that what I said? Meg, don't leave, okay? Would you just... Something happened in the game and he jumped. Shit, he got me! She left, slamming the door. Devon called out, Meg, wait! But he didn't run after her. 
She expected him to call and apologise, beg her forgiveness, but he didn't. Days passed. Then she sent him a curt email saying that maybe it would be better if they just stayed friends from now on, and, disappointingly, he had agreed. The game finished installing. Meg hovered the mouse pointer over the start icon. She felt strangely ambivalent. She'd fought so hard against this damn game, and now she was actually going to run it. She also felt an inexplicable dread, as if the game would suck her in the way it had sucked in Devon and she'd never escape. But that was silly. She was just using it to contact him. She double-clicked. The game menu loaded. She created a character and chose all the most basic options. Human, female, warrior. The name Meg was taken, so she added a random string of numbers, Meg1274, and logged in. The game displayed a list of servers. Meg did a search for his character, Prince Devonar. He was the only player listed on a server named Citadel of Power. She connected to it. She typed, Hi, Devon. No response. She tried again. Devon? It's me, Meg. Are you there? Finally, he answered. Meg? She typed, Are you okay? A long pause. I found something. In the game. Unbelievable. But now I'm stuck. Need help. Was this whole situation some elaborate setup to get her to play the game with him? But that was crazy. Not even Devon would drop out of school as part of such a ruse. She typed, Devon, call me, okay? Another pause. Can't call. Trapped. Please, Meg, help me. You're the only one who can. I can't help, she typed. I'm only level one. Not in the game, he typed back. In real life. Ask the gnome. Please, Meg, I really need you. Can't stay. Meg, save me, please. She typed frantically. Devon, wait, what's going on? Where are you? But Prince Devonar was gone. Devon had said to ask the gnome, but that wasn't so easy. No one really understood what the gnome was. He seemed to wander through time and space. He was usually benevolent, appearing to those in need and offering hints or assistance or powerful items, but he was also fickle and enigmatic. He seemed to only appear after you'd given up hope of finding him. He also seemed to prefer locales with corners that he could pop out from and then disappear around. So Meg parked downtown and wandered the back alleys. She couldn't stop thinking of Devon's final words. Save me, please. If only the gnome would show himself. Hours passed. Forget it. She was going home. She crossed the street, and then the gnome before her. Crimson-robed, white-bearded, flesh like dry sand. One eye brown, kindly, the other blue, inscrutable. In a soft and alien voice he observed, on a quest. Finally, she wanted to grab him. Where's Devon? Tell me! This is your path. The gnome pointed to the road at her feet, then westward. Meg nodded. I'll follow it. The gnome turned his kindly brown eye upon her. Have no fear, though obstacles lie in your way. Your victory is assured, foretold by prophecy. 
when the warrior maid with love in her heart sets out, sword in her right hand, wand in her left, nothing shall stand before her. Wand? she said. The gnome reached up his sleeve and drew forth a thin black rod two feet long. He whispered, The most dire artifact in all the world, the wand of reification. He handed it to her. It chilled her fingers and was so dark that it seemed to have no surface. He said, Imbued with the power to give form to dreams, it may only be used three times. Devon had said once that in the game there are items that vanished after you used them. So he'd never used them. He'd beat quest after quest without them, though they would have aided him considerably. He was always afraid he'd need them later. He'd asked, what does that say about me? And she'd said, You're afraid of commitment? And he'd laughed. It wasn't so funny now, though, as she clutched this wand, so potent yet so ephemeral. How could she ever use it? When she looked again, the gnome had vanished. Meg retrieved her car and set off the way the gnome had pointed. The road, a double yellow line and two lanes of black asphalt, bordered by sidewalks. She drove. Skyscrapers and then suburbs fell away behind her. She passed clusters of thatched-roof cottages. Men farmed and cows grazed and windmills turned. Sometimes ancient oaks pressed in close to the road. Sometimes she saw castles on distant hills. The needle on her gas gauge sank, and she hoped to find a station, but there were none. Finally, the engine died. She left her car and set off down the sidewalk. Twilight came. Then the long line of street lamps lit up, casting eerie white splotches on the darkened street, and creating a tableau somehow dreamlike and unreal. She thought of how Devon and Brant would sometimes smoke pot and then get into long, rambling discourses on the nature of existence. During one such conversation, Devon had said, Do you know anything about quantum mechanics? Not really, Brant had replied. So Devon said, well, in the everyday world, things exist. If I leave a book on this table, I know for sure that it's there. But when you get down to the subatomic level, things don't exist in the same way. They only exist as probabilities, until directly observed. How do you explain that? Brandt countered, how do you explain it? Devon smirked, like this. Our world isn't real. It's a simulation, an incredibly sophisticated one but not without limits. It can keep track of every molecule, but not every last subatomic particle. So it estimates, and only starts figuring out where specific particles are when someone goes looking for them. That's so weird, Brandt had said. Meg heard a vehicle approaching from behind, then its headlights lit the street. She glanced back into the glare, then kept walking. The vehicle slowed. It followed, in a way she didn't like. Finally, it pulled even with her. A black SUV, its windows open. From the darkness came a rasping, lascivious voice. Hey, where are you going? She ignored it, walked. Need a ride? The voice waited. Hey, I'm talking to you. A long pause. What, you too good to talk to us? When Meg didn't answer, the voice hissed, Bitch, and the driver gunned the engine. 
the truck sped off. Meg watched it go, then watched its tail lights flare a sudden red challenge, watched it swing around, its headlights sweeping the trees, watched it come on two coronas of searing white. Cackles rose from its windows. Meg drew her sword and stepped into the street. The car horn shrieked. She slashed upwards, between the lights, and the truck split. Its two halves swept past on either side. Its right half sped into a tree. Its left half flipped over and rolled thirty yards along the pavement. Meg followed after. She neared the wreckage. A scraggly vermilion arm reached up through one window. Then a face appeared, hairless, dark-eyed, ears like rotting carrots. A goblin. He squirmed free and dropped to the ground. A second goblin crawled from beneath the wreck. The first drew a long, wavy dagger. Look what you did to my truck! But before he could start forward, the second grabbed him and leaned in close. It's her, the facilitator! The first goblin studied Meg, and his eyes widened. He sheathed his dagger. So it is. He touched two knuckles to his gnarled red brow. I apologise, my lady. We owe you much. The goblins edged around her, then hurried over to the other half of their vehicle. They dragged out two more goblins, who were seriously injured, and departed together. And then they were gone. But their words stayed with Meg and perplexed her and troubled her greatly. She had other adventures, vanquished other foes, and the road led ever on. Finally, she came to the peak of a rocky prominence and looked out over a mile-long crater. The street ran downhill until it reached the gates of a dark and forbidding fortress. She knew that this must be the citadel of power, and that Devon must be within. She hiked down to it. The drawbridge had been lowered. She eased across, sword in her right hand, wand of reification in her left. The portcullis was up and the gate lay open. She slipped into the yard. Empty. She crept sideways, keeping the wall at her back. She held her breath, heard nothing. She peeked into the central yard and saw a grand stone altar. She crept closer. An object lay upon it. A wand. The wand of reification. She glanced at her left hand, which still held her wand. She'd thought it unique. She already had a wand of reification and hadn't even used it. She shrugged, took the second wand, and tucked it in her belt, then moved on. She searched bedchambers, kitchens, a great hall, a cavernous ballroom, all empty. She entered an ancient armory. Crossbows, shields, pikes. Wands. Rack after rack of wands. Hundreds of wands. A thousand? Wands of reification all, she felt sure. She didn't understand. She went outside and crossed the yard again. The sky had begun to dim, and now she saw faint light in a tower window. She ran toward it. Which hall? Which way? She dashed through rooms and under arches and up spiral stairs. Finally she found it. A door, shut, one light spilling from beneath. She hurled herself against the door and burst into the room with her sword raised. A bedchamber. Posters on the walls. 
Devon's posters from his old dorm room. Light from a computer monitor. Someone sat before it. He turned. Devon. He smiled and said, Meg, hey! She ran to him, enfolded him in her arms, along with sword and wand and everything, and said, Are you all right? I was so worried. I'm fine. He squeezed her and chuckled. Everything's fine. He pulled back, brushed aside a lock of her hair and kissed her. He was so tall and handsome, tawny-haired and emerald-eyed. He wore a gold medallion over a purple doublet with dagged sleeves. Come on, you're exhausted. He led her to the bed, and they sat down together. He took her sword and wand and laid them on the nightstand. She rested her cheek against his shoulder. She stared at the familiar posters. The nearest was an Edmund Leighton print, and whispered, Aren't you in trouble? I thought you were. Devon, I don't understand what's happening. Shh, he stroked her hair. Just relax, okay? I'll explain everything. He said that the real world was just a simulation, like a game. He didn't know who'd made it, but whoever they were, they didn't seem to show themselves or ever interfere. Like any game, it had bugs. Many of these involved realms of Eldritch, which was itself a new, fairly sophisticated simulation, and sometimes things got confused, and an item from the game got dumped into the real world. That's how he'd gotten the Wand of Reification, which could be used to alter almost anything. With it, he'd set things in motion. He said, Do you understand so far? She nodded tentatively. It was all so strange. He said that since the Wand could only be used three times, he'd had to go looking for another bug, some way to duplicate the Wand. Fortunately, there was one, but it was very specific. If a female warrior set out to rescue a man she loved and was given the wand by the gnome, the game set a quest tag wrong and let her acquire the wand again at the Citadel of Power, leaving her with two. Devon said, Ah, speak of the devil. Meg raised her head. The gnome. His head canted so that his mysterious blue eye watched her. Devon reached toward the nightstand, took the wand, and handed it to the gnome. Meg murmured, why are you giving it to him? Devon said, so he can give it to you again. The gnome stuck the wand in his sleeve, gave a curt nod, and hobbled from the room. Meg was mystified. You said this bug creates an extra wand? Yes. She thought of the armory. But you have hundreds of wands. Over a thousand, Devon said. He took the spare wand from her belt and placed it on the bed. One for each time you've come here. One thousand two hundred and seventy-four wands. She was stunned. But I don't remember, he told her somewhat cryptically. When you restart a quest, you lose all your progress. Meg stood, pulling from his embrace. Devon, you lied to me. You said you were trapped here. He stood too. I'm sorry, I had to. You had to be on a quest to save me, otherwise it wouldn't work. She fumed. I was in danger. I was attacked. He held back a smile. And what happened? I... She hesitated. I beat them. 
Of course, Meg, you're level 60. You have the most powerful sword in the game. Nothing can harm you. There was never any danger. Didn't you get my prophecy? Your prophecy? That's why I wrote it, he said. That's why I made the gnome recite it, so you wouldn't be afraid. She paced to the window and looked out. This was all too much. So now you've got a thousand wands. Why? What are you planning to do? He came and put his arm around her and said softly, To remake the world. To make it what it should have been all along. A place of wonder and adventure, without old age or disease. A place where death is only temporary, like in the game. You're going to make the game real, she said. Yes. She felt apprehension. I don't know, Devon. Maybe you shouldn't be messing around with this. I like the world just fine the way it is. Meg, his tone was affectionate. You always say that. She felt a sudden alarm. What? Again, he suppressed a smile. It's already begun. Ages ago. You think the world always had goblins and giant spiders and a gnome running around handing out magic items? That's all from the game. I made that happen. She felt adrift. I don't remember. No one does, he said. The wand makes things real. Not just physical, but real. Only I know that things used to be different, and now so do you. And the goblins, Meg thought. They knew. Devon kept going. That's what's so funny, Meg. No matter what I do, no matter what crazy, incongruous reality I create, you always want things to stay exactly the way they are. That's just your personality. But we can't stop now. There's still so much to do. And you'll love it when I'm done, you'll see. You have to trust me. I don't know, she said. I need to think about it. Of course, Devon replied. Take all the time you need. So she stayed with Devon at the Citadel of Power, and they ate meals together in the dining hall, and danced together in the grand ballroom, and after that first night they slept together again too. She was still in love with him. She always had been. Even the game knew it. They hiked together around the crater's rim, and he told her of the world as it had been, when there'd been no magic at all, and humans were the only race that could speak, and adventure was something that most people only dreamt of. It sounded dismal, and yet Meg wondered, Could you reverse the process? Put everything back the way it was? Devon was silent a while. It would take a long time, but yes, I could. Is that what you want? I don't know, she said. That night, Devon told her, I want to show you something. He led her to their tower chamber and turned on his computer. Meg was suddenly nervous. The monitor flickered. Icons appeared. Devon said softly, Look at my background. It showed two students sitting on a couch at a party. Meg didn't know them. The girl was pear-shaped and frizzy-haired and wore thick glasses. The guy wore glasses, too, and was gangly, with thin lank hair and blotchy skin. The two of them looked happy together, in a pathetic sort of way. Meg said, Who are they? 
Devon said. That's the night we met. Meg was horrified. She looked again, and suddenly she did recognise traces of themselves in the features of those strangers on the couch. Devon explained. I used the wand on us. Nothing drastic. I could do a lot more. I could make us anything we want. But you need to understand, Meg, when you talk about putting things back the way they were, exactly what you're saying. Meg could accept the way she looked now, merely a pale shadow of Lena, but to think that she might not even be pretty might be that girl. I thought you should know, Devon said, apologetic. The next day, at lunch, Meg asked him, What is it you want me to do? He lowered his utensils. Start the quest over. How? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. He nodded in the direction of the tower. On my computer, I can show you. So that you'll get another wand, she said. Yes. And I won't remember any of this? No, he said. She leaned back in her seat. How many more times, Devon? My God, how many more wands? As many as it takes, he said without equivocation. She stood up from the table and said, I need to think, alone. He nodded. She went and paced the castle walls. Devon wanted his new world more than anything. If she went along, then together they could have immortality and adventure and opulence and wonder. What had the old world offered? Crappy jobs and student loans, illness and death. What kind of a choice was that? She'd been here before, even if she didn't remember, and had sided with Devon 1,274 times. Who was she now to doubt the wisdom of all her past choices? He was still sitting there when she returned and said, Fine, show me. He led her to the tower and loaded the game. He selected a character named Meg, who looked exactly like her. The character was level 60, and carried a sword of ultimate cleaving plus 100. 
Devon clicked through a few menus, then stood. Okay, you have to do it. Meg sat down at the computer. A box on the screen said, Citadel of Power, are you sure you want to start this quest over from the beginning? The mouse pointer hovered over yes. Devon leaned down next to her. Are you ready? Yes, she whispered. He kissed her cheek. I'll see you again soon, okay? Okay, she said, and clicked. Meg hadn't heard from Devon in four months, and she realised that she missed him. So on a whim, she tossed her sword and scabbard into the back seat of her car and drove over to campus to visit him. Ages passed. And now, Lena the Elf Maid is the most beautiful woman in all the world, and her lover is the most handsome man, Prince Devonar. They journey onward together, battling giants, riding dragons to distant lands, and feasting in the halls of dwarven kings. The prince is incandescent with joy. He was born for this, and Lena enjoys seeing him so happy. She loves him. They ride two white unicorns down a forest path blanketed with fresh snow, and by some strange twist of magical fate, they come upon something that should not exist. It lies half buried in the drifts, but Lena can see that it was once a sort of carriage, made from black metal. It has a roof, and its underside is all manner of piping, rusted now. Long ago, someone had sliced it in half. Where its other half may now lie, none can say. The prince leaps from his mount and circles the strange object. What foul contraption is this? Lena drops to the ground too, and staggers forward. A strange feeling passes over her, and a teardrop streaks her cheek. She can't say why. Soon she is sobbing. The prince takes her in his arms. My lady, what's the matter? He scowls at the object. It's upset you. Here, it shan't trouble us any longer. He pulls the wand of reification from his belt and aims. No! She pushes his arm aside. Leave it, please. He shrugs. As you wish. But come, let's away. I mislike this place. He mounts his unicorn. Lena stares at the strange carriage, and for a moment she remembers a world where countless such things race down endless black roads. A world of soaring glass towers, of medallions that spoke in the voices of friends a thousand leagues distant, and where tales were told with light thrown up on walls the size of giants. Film, she remembers. Independent film. Jane Austen. But the moment passes, and that fantastic world fades, leaving only the present, leaving only this odd, lingering sensation of being trapped in someone else's dream. She mounts her unicorn, and three words stick in her head, an incantation from a forgotten age. She no longer remembers where she heard the words, only that they now seem to express a feeling that surges up from somewhere deep inside her. Save me, please.
Hmm. I think I recognise the gaming obsession, do you? Our second story today is an epic tale called Of Malay of Ulthar by Gord Salah. Mr Salah is a writer, an educator, an avid home brewer and occasional musician. His work has appeared in many magazines, anthologies and journals since 2007 and several of his screenplays have been made into award-winning short films. A bit of a world traveller, he was born in Malawi, raised in Canada, spent 11 years lecturing in South Korean universities and is currently living in Vietnam with his wife while working on a novel. You can go to gordcellar.com for more. It's read for you by Maria Makis, who received an MFA in acting many years ago, but detoured a bit to become a lawyer. She is happily returning to her first and only true calling and is a voice actor in New York City where she lives. She is especially drawn to narration and audiobooks, and you'll hear why in a moment. You can learn more at mariamarquisvoiceover.com. And so, here we have it. Of Millet of Ulthar by Gord Salar. Haunted went Malay that evening into the streets of Ulthar. Haunted by what she had seen in the dream voyage of the night before. Desert fires burning distant across the dark and dusty plains, and an immense black silhouette of some enormous outcropping of rock rising up, upward into the sky to blot out the tiny flickering stars across half of the heavens. In a dream, too, had she heard voices echoing against the stone walls of buildings crammed together along narrow streets, voices laden with care and worry, crying her name out into the blackness of deepening night. Her name, but not Malay, not that name she used in waking, had crouched in wait beneath her tongue. Perhaps it was only natural, in the dreaming, in this other world to be called something else, that name, strange in her mouth, cold and quivering when she nearly whispered it to herself, was hers. And why not? She was alone. She lived alone, and with nobody shared the secrets of her nocturnal voyages. For who would call her anything but mad? So that awake, by the lengthening hours of that slow, still warm autumn endlessness, Malay stalked the cozy, jumbled streets of Ulthar listlessly, suffering through a sunny afternoon as faraway gleam of dreamt flames in darkness and the tempo of faint faraway cries and chanting haunted her waking mind. Cats, for in Ulthar where there was one there was ten, traipsed past in little dainty-footed troops, eyeing her with the wary look of beings that glimpsed her dark secrets as no human could. She yielded the road to them just as everyone in Ulthar did, occasionally stooping to rub one behind the ear, briefly, just until its tail batted back against her elbow and it turned its head slightly before going on along its carefree, shiftless way. Always one with black and white patches, always with white paws, she knelt to touch those chiaroscuro beasts with the slightest hesitation only. With a trepidation she prayed nobody noticed, most of all the beasts themselves, and yet she was sure in her heart's blood that they knew. They knew. And then round some corner would she follow the troop of cats and find a pack of soldiers standing together, 
staring at her from behind grilled black faceplates. She would stop, as other citizens did not, and stare into those night-dark eyes, glimpse the dark folds of eyelids surrounding those bold orbs, and sigh gently and slowly to herself, for those people looked to her like the folk of her dreams, almost. Swarthy, yes, and smelling of exotic, perplexing spices. Beside them, in the street, as clouds drifted in overhead, over the tops of God's haunted mountains, she took comfort in that strange aroma, the hint of myrrh and tehenna and cinnamon. The broad brown lips pursed stern. The foreign soldiers looked at this bold young woman with wonder, for none of Ulther had done as she, pausing to gaze into their eyes with something like recognition, perhaps, or fascination in their own, only Malay. She gazed thus for a few brief moments upon these strange and ever-surly foreigners, as a wanderer sometimes, but only sometimes looks upon the walls of the city where her people have dwelt since forgotten ages. In dreaming, she often had seen folk like these, sat at fires and eaten with them, sung songs she only half understood, songs shared with that hopeful, dire world which filled her waking days with longing. But no songs now. Instead she whispered a word to them, a single word in her own language. One of them, in his fluted blue steel armor, shrugged slightly. They looked at one another and then at her again, the expectation being that she would move on. A tall, she asked them. A name, a single word so pathopoetic that the warriors could do nothing but ache from it and she nodded her fair head past them to a distant gate behind, up to the high temple carved from hillstone there, where ancient Atal was in those days thought still to linger. His image had been painted last as a priest in repose, feeble and centuries worn. Atal in white robes, shaven head resting upon a stone pillow, his eyes full of longing, staring up from the canvas. Malay had seen pictures in the public hall, gazed reverently upon it for an hour while closing her eyes and opening them again, over and over until the image was stamped upon her mind perfectly, indelibly. The soldiers only pursed their dark, broad lips harder and shook their heads. They nodded down the road, not towards wherever Atal now was, if indeed the old priest lived still. These footmen of the new conqueror were directing her nowhere except away. Malay gazed upon them a moment more. What songs had they sung as boys? What games had they played amidst fires burning among the darkling foothills surrounding the great peaks of the south? Slowly, she turned and followed a quiet old striped tomcat away along a gutter. But she heard them speak of her then to one another. And then, suddenly, Ulthar was no longer tinged by her dreams, no longer dressed in that enchantment she had smuggled back from the world of her slumbering voyages. 
as the soldier spoke with muted words at once utterly gibberish and completely familiar, she gave up on her earlier half-fancies that she might even have understood them, at least the sense in them, if only she could have heard their voices a little more clearly. It was a lie. They were not mystical creatures. They were quotidian men of muscle and sinew, and Ulthar was simply a holding in their master's empire and Malay longed for more. She felt their eyes upon her as she wandered down the road and round a corner, her eyes searching the sky for the first stars that she might turn homeward and settle herself down to the repose and reverie that only sleep could bring her. The black night ocean roared beneath, broad and noisy with the lapping of waves that she could hear clear as children's voices, so silently did she glide through the deep, familiar sepia that always preceded sunrise on these flights. The ocean was new. Often she had soared above grasslands, occasionally among the buildings of a smog-choked city. But tonight, this dream morning, she found herself above some expansive southern ocean. Below, from time to time, a lumbering darkness could be seen, spilling light from tiny windows, luminance far different from any reflection of the whole and simple face of the single crescent moon above her. These were windows in the hulls of lumbering ships that crawled across the ruined sea. As sepia slowly burned into orange with the coming of the morning sun, Malay spied the coast ahead. It was an immense and hideous metal graveyard, the hulls and decks of broken ships protruding from the sand, their bare bones laid out as if upon an examiner's table. Among them gathered laboring men, already at work, hauling enormous rusty chains and ruined slabs of metal ashore. The ships looked as if they had been hewn in half by some enormous awful blade and left to bleed into the ocean, for the waters too were sullied here, stained black and putrid. The rancid stink of the waters wafted up into the air, and Malay gasped in stunned disbelief. This was not the same sight she had visited in previous dream flights, though the people shared the same dark hue of skin, wore the same resignation on their faces. A man beneath her dropped his load, a gargantuan link of chain slamming down onto his leg, and he collapsed upon the poisoned sand with a cry so loud she could hear it as she soared past. It was exquisite, wrenching, but enchanting. It was a place where mistakes mattered, and this was why Malay kept returning, because this world was one of consequences and dire meanings, godless and hard and amazing, but this beach was not the precise place she sought. In Ulthar, Malay was a mere seamstress, a needle girl who day in and day out walked the streets, careful not to step and catch it. But in this strange world she found herself possessed of powers beyond anything a real person in Ulthar could have boasted in millennia. She could soar in the sky, and she could go anywhere. And there was a place that she was seeking these nights. Below her a fence surrounded an enormous tent village. 
Men shouted, and there was a violent clattering sound and screams. She saw people running, people clothed in white that shone against their dark flesh. To Malay they were unspeakably beautiful in their terror, running for their lives, panicked. She felt her tears welling up. Such awful lives, and yet they held on to them so desperately. What humbling beauty, what endless rapture that beings could live that way in a world so starved of magic and gods. It enchanted her as she swooped down low enough to brush her fingertips against the tattered hems of a few of the dingy white shirts that ran long enough to reach down past the knees of the scrambling men and women. Malay concentrated and suddenly spun in the air, soaring now into the northwest. There was a city there that she had read of in secret books hidden in the drab tea-rooms of Ulthar. Books only secret because nobody read them, for the denizens of Ulthar spoke only of the failed expeditions to unearth Kadath, old dead Kadath, and of gossip in the racked courts of Ulthar that was now under southern rule. But Malay had read on fragile, forgotten pages of the wild, tangled passage roads that ran between the great gray monoliths of that old city on the coast, the city with the unbroken towers and the bridges, and the streets laden with music and voices and wavering lights. Across an ocean it lay, unutterably far by the standard of these folk. But for a dream traveler, its bright roads and bustling noise lay within reach, if the will was strong. If only she could find that strange and mystic polis. Nobody had done so in eons of dreaming, not in the lifetime even of gods. The sky swallowed her, and she soared into it not lightly, but as an arrow soars towards its victim's death, unstoppable, unabashed, and filled with the most resolute certainty imaginable. Excrescences, thick and strange, rose from the drowned streets, wafting steamily up from broad, jagged, bared holes in the ground, and Malay swept down into the fog of the broken city. This was the place, but no longer the city of the pages, not of the city about the magnificences of which had been whispered and scribbled out by dream-wanderers in ancient tomes long lost. This polis had changed. Its million secret details discarded like the flimsy skin of an ancient serpent drifting through the slow eternity of its being. The city had, by some horrid magic or doom, been drowned and slain. Ruined, its towering spirit smashed apart, the smithereens tossed into cold water and frozen away into bitter ice. Here, a great library stood encrusted in ice that gleamed chill as diamonds in darkness, and before it, barges poled by men in thick woolen coats, shivering and calling out in their strange tongues, baleful cries. Old men and women gathered upon the library steps and huddled at its high windows as flakes of snow fell enormous and faintly gray with the ash of fires half a world away. And there... Further along, the great old temples of the last true religion in that world, the fanatic cult houses of the worshippers of the magical curve, the endless blessed marketers and insatiable blood-hungry pirates of water and light and time, 
There, these rectangular temples of lost merchandises stood with windows smashed, empty from lootings, empty except for the poor, useless souls who took refuge in their icy halls remaining since the cult had loosed its foul and terrible powers upon the world and toppled everything that humankind had once built up. Thence flew Malay deeper into the city, over crumbled steel bridges and the steeples of abandoned, burnt-down churches. She heard singing, not of human voices, not of ghosts, for this world, haunted though its inhabitants' faces were, was a place bereft of stalking ghouls and spirits hungrily wandering. No, not like the frightening lands that lay distant from Ulthar. Nothing like the shadow passes near high old Kadath or the caverns of Bethanis. Only the wretched faces of the living gazed out through the smashed glass windows. The voice she heard was none other than her own, crying out in her exultant terror. An open square between the broken buildings spread out below her, and she wondered whether this had been a park or the base of some enormous destroyed temple or perhaps that square wherein ancient frigid knights the folk of the city had gathered to witness the death knell of the ending year and cry out jubilant with the beginning of the new. No hint suggested which guess might be correct. She thought again of living here in this strange world of cold consequences as often as she had before. Shivering. Not from cold for her dreaming self was swaddled in thick, warm wool, and something of the power of her dream-voyaging shielded her from the worst of the awful ruined climb, but rather from a titillation derived less from horror at the ruined city, or that such ruination was possible, than out of purer terror that shook her upon witnessing the magnificent finality of the fact of the ruination itself. Broken buildings slumbered all around her as she flew past, and she marveled that this world was thus, a place where ruinations could be visited upon mighty civilizations in a generation, yet where the people here would endure on, shivering and hungry, fighting to continue. Whisperings of the fate of Sarnath bubbled up from the silence of her forgotten childhood, but there peered no specters from the windows of this city, or at least none that had died, only the pale and sallow faces of the hungry stared out at her, living scavengers looking out, lit by fires and shame. Terror, the terror of finding oneself before a mountain to be scaled, a mountain the height of a dozen nations piled upon one another end to end, boasting whole civilizations and wastelands between them upon a slope rising unceasingly upward into the sky the terror of looking upon the ocean stirred into a raging turmoil of violence, terror at confronting the great secret of this world, that all things had endings, all things could be destroyed just as they had once long ago been built up. That terror swept through Malay, thrilled her. That was when her name in this world, that other name, pierced up into her tongue begging again to be spoken and seal itself upon her. She bit her tongue, bit down into it so hard that it ached and bled a little. To say the name, to consign herself among the living shades, such a temptation, 
The name fought relentlessly. It would be said, she realized, someday. She would come to live here in this drowned city of humbling, awful beauty. It would be her home someday, taking her into its brutal black arms like a lover would do, grinding its iciness against her shivering flesh. Still she fought, clenching her teeth and grinding them together so violently that she felt they might break off in her mouth. She pushed herself upward into the sky, letting go of the city, even as she stared into the watery canal gridwork of its forgotten, worthless streets. She let herself ascend into the foul clouds that were heavy with strange poisons, up into the cold nebulousness that lay beyond them, falling away from this awful and lovely world that was her constant obsession, this place of strange meanings and consequences and cruel finalities. The city and all of its broken, awful grandeur blurred into a mere patch of indistinct darkness dotted with scattered open fires, blending into the surrounding darkness and becoming nothingness as she fell upward, outward, away from the world once again. Malay's eyes opened slowly as the sunrise just finished, and serene Ulthar gradually stirred from its long nocturnal slumber. She slid her prodigious bedding aside and took up her scribbling notebook in one hand, searching for the words that would draw the magnificently drab colors across from that other world into hers. A troop of cats passed by her window, meowing gleefully at one another, and she rose to peer out at them, as if to divine some portent from the colors of their coats. But they were a motley pack, impossible to read even for a girl as bright as Malay. Waking, dreaming, she felt as if a woman torn between two lovers, one of them calm and sweet and still and good, and the other magnificent, stone-muscled and taciturn and bold enough to seize her and pull her close to him in the darkness of the night. She set her notebook down, ruminating. There was a choice coming. She would have to choose a name, said she in that world, Malay, then her dark lover would listen and hear and understand what her heart said. The delicious torture would end, and he would send her home, never to return. Yet said she that other name, that strange name that even now squirmed beneath her tongue, prickling her mouth and fighting to be pronounced in the sunny morning calm of Uthar. Then her dark lover would seize her all at once and carry her off into the delightful terror of the world of her dreams, leaving the streets of Ulthar forever empty of her. She could feel the city's ache at the very thought of her leaving. The city's ache, or perhaps it was her own. No harm could come of writing the name, she decided. She had written it upon her own palm in different scripts, one by one, and not a thing had happened save that she had dreamt of the other world sooner and more fiercely each time. She could write it upon a page, she was sure. It was not the same as saying it. She could still decide, Malay or... She took a quill, unlidded a jar of sepia ink, and touched the quill's tip into the inky darkness. Without speaking, with her jaw locked firmly to guard against accidental pronouncement, she touched the tip of the quill against the gently yellowed page. 
the dawn sunlight cast a shadow from the feather quill, throwing a line of gentle shading across the page and into her lap. She shut her eyes and opened them, and shut them again, and once more opened them so as to let the shadow find a place in her heart's memory. She realized then that she was building up a storehouse of memories already. The faces of the swarthy guards, the troops of cats mewing happily all around her. She had stopped hating Othar, wincing at the summery stink of the cat turds and grumbling at the foreign power that ruled the place. She had found the kind of love that wells up one when she abandons her lover for another, her world for another's, that sort of love that is rooted in impossibility, that cannot be prevented even by sorrow, even by fear, even by the movement of the shadow across a page as the sun slips up into the sky. She did not write the name, but instead rose, scribbling books still in hand, and went back to her window. The sweetest cottages of Ulthar lay just there, empty of terror, but touching in their way, stirring memories of the games she had played in those dusty streets during what felt like another life. Laughter, and the voices of children who had somehow become half-forgotten friends, folk whose faces she had seen not once in ages and ages and Malay knew then that she would say the name. Perhaps not that night. Not so soon as that, she told herself. But she would say it, and go, and old Ulthar would continue on without her as it had done before her birth with its cats and gentle sunny days and whispering old women and men. She filled a basin with warm water and carried it to a high table in her room her feet padding upon the wooden planks of the floor. Outside a bird sang a snatch of birdsong she had heard dozens of times before, though she could not name what type of bird it was. She splashed the water on her face, delighting in its gentle warmth, stealing herself, for there would be precious little warmth like this in the other world, in the arms of her dark dream lover. And then she donned a bright and comfortable silk, light and shade to suit the warm day, and crossed the threshold of her home, going out into the street that smelled of blooming cherry flowers and apple orchards that had been planted by the southerners. There, in the street, a trio of cats gazed up at her, curiously eyeing her approach with heads tilted one way or another. They seemed like all cats in Ulthar, almost as if they wished to ask her something, or to dispense some holy secret to her. But if indeed this was so, they said nothing, their own jaws as firmly locked as hers had been minutes before. An old man made his way down the street, comfortable and calm, though his back was a little bent. He smiled at her, and a cock crowed in the distance, and Malay closed her eyes and opened them again, and closed them, and opened them again, committing every breath of it every shade and tiny noise and scent to the strongest urn in the storehouse of her memory. The voices of children long gone echoed now within that storehouse, and the image of her mother baking sour bread, and the laughter of cats, for in Ulthar by night cats do laugh, though only the most blessed ever hear it more than once, and the sunrises, the sunrises that had saddened her so often. Perplexed, 
she went through the streets dazed, eyes and heart drinking Othar in deeply and constantly until she was drunk with the place. It was her farewell kiss to the world of her birth, a kiss of the eyes upon the forehead. It was her last embrace of the little city, day long as she wandered and rambled from shop to temple to the current doorsteps of present friends and the abandoned doorways of friends long lost. She met those she had once loved and said nothing of leave-taking, though she wondered if they could see it in her eyes. Yet she asked not a soul as she spoke to them of nothings, of needlework and gossip, and of the latest news from other cities and lands. As she walked those quiet, calm streets, her footsteps tapping gently the beat of her last ballad to Althar, she realized she loved this city, loved it unceasingly, and would do so evermore, though she would not live here any longer. For as the sun began slowly to draw itself down onto the horizon, and the shadows lengthened across the streets as another shadow had done upon her page that morning, the name beneath Malay's tongue stirred once more, this final time irresistibly. So dreamlike. Do yourself a favour. As much as you enjoyed this story, listen to it again in a day or two. So much sinks down into your subconscious, the second listening is different. Anyhow, that brings us to the end of the show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 licence. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, tell a friend or post about it on your blog or page. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling and go for a long walk this week. See the place where you live with fresh eyes. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 